This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. New Zealanders are very familiar with life under a supermarket duopoly and it's much the same across the Tasman. In Australia, supermarket competition has become a hot issue as inflation has risen and the big two players have been accused of price gouging and profiteering. It's resulted in a major political backlash and played into the cost of living issue which is dominating public debate. NBR's Sydney correspondent, Lachlan Cahoon, has been looking at this for shoeshine this week and joins me now. Lachlan, tell us about the supermarket industry in Australia. Just how much of a stranglehold does the duopoly there have? Uh, thanks, Nicholas. Look, it's uh, probably a situation that's very familiar with Kiwis. We have Coles and Woolworths. Uh, they're the big two, and they have been for a long time. Uh, uh, they hold around 70% of the market. We call them Coldsworth. We just sort of roll them into the one entity and, uh, and call them Colesworth. I mean, in some urban areas, there would possibly be a, Col- uh, be a Coles or a Woolworths on both sides of the street. So you wouldn't actually have mm. to cross the street to get to one of them. Um, but in regional areas, they might have about a 90% stranglehold. So it's uh, it's much different uh, in, in regional areas. And that 70% doesn't include a company called Endeavour, which is ASX listed. And, and that was spun out of Woolworths a few years ago. And that holds uh, the Dan Murphy's brand, which is the biggest liquor retailing brand in Australia. So, mm. so really, Woolworths probably have a bit more of a uh, of a market share than um, th- than that seventy percent. Um, but um, we also have Aldi. Um, Aldi entered the market, the German company, in two thousand and one. They've got about ten percent of the market. And then there's Metcash, which I think it was originally a South African company. They're an ASX listed wholesaler, and they supply mm. to a, a network we have called IGA, Independent Grocers. And these tend to be owner operated stores. Uh, this is a market that's worth about one hundred and thirty five billion dollars a year. Nick. So there's a lot at stake. So this market dominance, I understand it's led to a number of inquiries. What are they looking at? And I understand there was one reported last week. That's right. I mean, this has all been prompted by inflation, of course, um, claims of price gouging. And uh, and then we had the, um, the claims of price gouging and then the big two uh, reported uh, 1.7 billion in profits last year. And that uh, and that sort of sent everything off the scale. And it resulted everywhere you look, there's an inquiry into it. The Senate are inquiring into it. The Queensland government have got a state government inquiry into it. And there's a former Labor minister, Craig Emerson. He's looking at the uh, Food and Grocery Code of Conduct. Um, and that's and that's a voluntary code. And then, of course, there's the big one, which is the ACCC inquiry announced in the last couple of weeks by the Prime Minister Albanese. But that'll take a year to play out. But yes, we did have one report uh, released last week. That was commissioned by the trade union organisation, the ACTU, mm-hmm. and con- conducted by former ACCC chairman Alan Fells. He uh, calls himself or is called the Elliot Ness of competition, although former <laughs> Prime Minister Paul Keating called him a nymphomaniac for publicity. He's somewhere between the two. Anyway, that report looked at a lot of industries. It did make some comments on supermarkets and it notably charged the major players, Colesworth, with price gouging. Um, there are a couple of things he, he pinpointed that the, he used this term excuseflation, where they were using um, the rise of inflation to um, 
to to, uh, to to raise their products beyond the, the, the level of inflation. And the other one was uh, rocket and feather tactics, which is not a term I've heard before, but what it refers to is mm. you send prices up like a rocket and then you bring them down uh, like a feather. So um, so th this is what we've had had going on. So so Fells has reported, but the big one um, is the is the ACCC um, inquiry, which will take a year to play out. You know, what realistic do you think can come from that major inquiry from the ACCC? Is this an example of, obviously, the cost of living is at the forefront for, for many people at the moment? Um, you know, this you mentioned the Senate inquiry. People have got to be seen to be doing something in response to this. But will it lead to some sort of, you know, solid or, or real notable outcomes, do you think? Um, look, I don't know what's my age, the fact that I'm a journalist or quite what, but uh, I think I'm fairly cynical about what's going what's likely to happen. Um, I mean, the ACCC, having been mandated by the government, they can collect a lot of information and you would expect them mm. to be forensic about it. Uh, but they'll take a year to do it. And by then, things may mm. well have changed. It may not be the issue that it is now. Um, they have the power to take legal action and sue uh, in cases where they find uh, anti-competitive behaviour. It's possible they might do that. I mean, they're taking action against Qantas for what happened last year, of course. Mm. Um, one thing that I don't really think that they'll do is, is recommend a breakup uh, of the big two. That would be like a real sledgehammer, and I doubt that there would be the political will to do that. Um, they might uh, recommend um, a limit on, on further mergers in the supermarket industry, but that's pointless because the horse has already bolted there. Um, so while the inquiry will be fascinating, uh, my bet that uh, at, at best it'll only have a moderating uh, impact on, on the duopoly. Uh, one real change could be that this voluntary code that, uh, that's being investigated between supermarkets and suppliers could become mandatory. Uh, I'm not sure if the ACCC would recommend that, but, uh, but if they do, it'll just be putting it back into the government's court and it's, it'll be a case of whether they've got the, uh, got the guts or the, uh, the political capital to be able to spend on it to make that happen. I, you know, there's a lot of you know air of what we saw here in New Zealand following our <laughs> inquiry into the supermarket sector. It seems like it yeah. might be a bit of a copy and paste job there from the ACCC. But look, I've seen that there is a, a too big to fail tag that's been put out there about the duopoly. Do you think that's valid? Does it stand? Uh, I don't know. Whether you, do you have the word furphy in, in New Zealand, Nicholas? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not aware of that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> No, a furphy means uh, means something that's um, uh, well, um, something that's essentially not true, something that's uh, that's inflated um, to 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 be a fact, but which is actually not a fact at all. Um, so yeah, this this sort of too big to fail argument goes that uh, that super funds and retail investors all have shares in 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 Colesworth, in in Coles and Woolworths, and um, and if if Coles and Woolworths fail and they they don't do well and they don't pay out their dividends, and that's going to hurt everybody, it's going to hurt the economy, and it's also going to hurt the suppliers, um, and um, I think that's a nonsense because we, we have choice here. Um, we have, uh, sure, they've got 70%, but there's 30% of the market that they don't have. If you if you don't like um, Coles and Woolworths, you go to Aldi. If you don't like investing in Coles and Woolworths, there's a whole lot of other stocks of the ASX you could invest in. You can invest in Medcash, which is the wholesaler to uh, to the IGA group. So so Australian consumers whinge about it, um, but they're essentially lazy, and I would say that that laziness is what helps maintain the duopoly. Um, so, you know, this argument about too big to fail is used in relation to the banks as well, and um, mm. you know, I just don't think it's—I just, I just don't think it's accurate. I mean, I had a look at the the, the major shareholders in uh, in both uh, Coles and Woolworths, um, following on this argument that people's superannuation funds um, returns would be would be hurt by it, and. 
none of the big super funds have major st- uh, stakeholdings in, in either Coles or Woolworths. So it's a, uh, it's a nonsense, um, in, mm. in my opinion, Nicholas. So what are the market conditions for the industry over 2024? And you know, how do you think this will affect sort of these competition and pricing issues? Look, I think uh, I spoke to a couple of analysts in the, in the course of doing the shoe shine, and they they both said pretty much the same thing. Inflation in Australia is coming down. Um, it's uh, it's mm-hmm. now at four point one percent. It peaked at seven point eight percent in December twenty twenty two, and that's when the squeals really started about the supermarkets. So. Um, so inflation is, is going to be less of an issue. So I think that'll take some of the heat out of it. Um, and the analysts also believe that um, the, the profits of the um, of the big two are going to be crimped by by wage increases. Wage wages growth is starting to creep up now. So the profits won't be as big. Uh, so perhaps that won't cause as much outrage. Uh, I mean, there's also a view that Aldi will continue to win market share, uh, and Costco and Amazon, um, the two that I haven't mentioned. Costco is the big U.S. Um, um, retailer that entered Australia about ten years ago. They haven't done much, but they've got deep pockets, and they might see an opportunity. Mm. And uh, and e-commerce is is booming. Um, so uh, that that means Amazon, and they they, they can grab. grab have more of a market share. So, so by the time the ACCC is set to report, this might not quite be the issue that it is now, and uh, that's going to be very convenient for the government. Look, on that, have, have, have politicians in Australia made any noise about the fact that it's going to take them a year to report any findings from this inquiry that they've undertaken? Has that come not. up in uh, any of the discussion yeah. about it? No, 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 no that, that hasn't been sort of... The, it, it's all been. Oh, look! We're, we're doing something about it now. We've initiated this right. uh, this A inquiry. This is we've handled it to the to the A um, So so now this shows that, that that we're doing something about it. So uh, so no, it's um, it's it's a lot of posturing. Um, I'm quite cynical about it. I don't think that there'll be a lot that's going to happen out of it. Maybe there'll be some. Um, maybe the supermarkets will start to behave a bit more. But also the uh, mm-hmm. the macroeconomic conditions are changing to an extent where uh, where I, I, in um, if we would have this conversation in a year or so um, after the ACCC reports, I just don't think it'll be as much of an issue. I may be wrong. I have been before, but that's my that's my call. All right, wonderful. Lachlan, put it in the diary in a year's time. We can expect another shoe shine from you on this topic. I look forward to that, Nicholas. Cheers. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Christoph Schumacher. Christoph, you're expecting the Reserve Bank to hold interest rates higher for longer. Why is that? Uh, simply because inflation isn't as low as we would like it to be. Um, I mean, at face value, uh, the, the current or the latest 4.3% sounds good, given that we started off at about 7.2% not too long ago. But if we actually take a closer look at what it means for our economy and the fact that inflation um, is um, a combined product of tradable and non-tradable inflation, um, then unfortunately um, the non-tradable inflation, which indicates what's really happening uh, in our economy because it only includes products that we don't export or import. And that non-tradable inflation actually sits close to still 6%, which might be just too high for the reserve bank to lower the OCR. Well, let's delve a bit deeper into that. So non-tradable means the domestic component of inflation, and that's what's been described as sticky. Absolutely right. Um, We have inflation in, in two areas. One is the the tradable. These are all the goods we either import 
to New Zealand. And that means we might import uh, inflation from overseas. If prices overseas get higher and we buy these products, they are more expensive in New Zealand. But it also means products we export because if somebody can sell a product for a higher price overseas, they charge this higher price in New Zealand as well. So that's uh, the tradable part. But then, as, as you, you rightly pointed out, there's a non-tradable part, and that's only the products we produce and sell here in New Zealand. That's your things such as your hairdresser, your medical uh, appointments, your gym, uh, government services, everything that is just produced and used here in New Zealand and is not traded and not exposed um, to international prices. Um, and that's the part that makes up 60% of our inflation uh, value roughly. And that really shows us whether there's a shortage or excess supply within our economy because that just focuses on New Zealand consumption and production. Mm. And StatsNZ has certainly pointed out on the non-tradable side, construction and rents is being high still. Absolutely. That's what you said. It's still sticky. Because if you look at the, the tradable part, it's down to about 3%. So that would be fantastic because it's it's within almost the band that the Reserve Bank wants to be. But the close to 6% of uh, non-tradable inflation is way too high and far off uh, the target midpoint of 2% we uh, want to have in New Zealand. And that's why the Reserve Bank will be unlikely um, to reduce the OCR and has expressed this actually quite clearly. The chief economist came out not long ago, um, gave a webinar and made very clear that the hawkish stand of the Reserve Bank will continue in, in 2024, which is a bit different what we heard about a year ago when there was sort of hope that the OCR will come down uh, in, in early 24 or during 24. But what's the outlook for the tradable side, though, given pressures in the Red Sea, global supply chain issues? That's another um, biggie at the moment. Um, shipments through the Suez Canal, which which comprises a large component of international trade is down by more than 50%. So the the world is just about to uh, wait for a a global supply chain problem and and disruption. And that, of course, would filter back to New Zealand. uh, If there's a shortage of products coming in, that puts pressure on uh, local prices as well and might push up our uh, tradable component part as well. So there's a double whamming at the moment. We have sticky uh, local inflation and an expectation that tradable inflation might also go up. So uh, 24 will not be an an easy year for the Reserve Bank in in, in relation to, to inflation. So will inflation trickle down into the target band this year then? I absolutely think so. Um, We don't know yet what will happen globally, but if those supply chain disruption filter through, um, that will have an impact. And on top of it, we have seen absolutely record migration numbers into New Zealand um, uh, last year. That was the largest number we've ever seen. So there's more people right now coming and settling in in New Zealand. Fewer are leaving. And that, of course, means um, local demand will go up. These people uh, want to buy dishwashers, cars, uh, widebear, need food, and so on. Um, So that will also put pressure on prices within New Zealand. What are the risks that the official cash rate goes higher? 
yes, there are actually now speculation. And um, if you look what some of the economists, mainly of the, the banks, say, they actually predict a potential rise uh, in the first half of, of this year. So, um, yes, big shock to the system, not only don't we see or won't we probably see the reduction in the OCR, but it might actually still go a bit up. And that simply would be the response of the Reserve Bank because it made it very, very clear it will rise the OCR until we are closer to that target level and the economy is safe from overheating. So you expecting a hawkish statement later this month? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. It came through in, in the recent statements, and I can't see anything happening right now that would change the view of the Reserve Bank. Christoph Schumacher, thanks for your time. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. More than 40 years ago, street poster and advertising firm Phantom Bill Stickers was born on a Christchurch street. Now that company operates around New Zealand, transforming outdoor advertising as we know it, while sticking to its roots. Phantom Bill Stickers Chief Executive Robin McDonnell joins me now. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. Well, let's go right back to the beginning and tell me a wee bit about how Phantom Bill Stickers came about and what's with the name. Yeah, so, I mean, it's we are a product of our name, I guess. Um, so our founder, Jim Wilson, um, was promoting bands in Christchurch in the 80s and was um, putting up posters for his for his gigs and and could see um, that there was there was a better way and that that um, you know he was covering people who were covering him who were covering someone else um, and so he he realized that that if if you know if everyone worked together um, and and aggregated um, the the advertising into into one kind of agent, then everyone would get a good showing, and um, so so Phantom kind of came about. the The name Phantom was uh, actually given to us by uh, a graphic designer called Ian Darzell, um, who's who sort of was doing did a lot of the early Flying Nun posters and work. So um, yeah, but it was sort of a um, I guess we were a product of the name back then, uh, very much a we, we went out in the middle of the night and, and stuck up posters. And how has that sort of transformed to where you are now? Uh, where we are now, where we have, you know, um, uh, you know, 30 staff and about about as many contractors nationwide um, operating in 13 centres, putting up, putting up um, you know, um, we have about 6,500 display, display points around the country. Um, everything's uh, consented and, and legitimate and, and we, we no longer have to go out in the middle of the night and, and stick up posters, although sometimes we do because it's easier to get around traffic. Um, but yeah, it's, sort of, it's, it's a very different, very different business these days. Mm-hmm. And how have you sort of transformed Phantom Bill stickers from, I suppose, sort of posters into sort of more sort of outdoor advertising and um, sort of murals and um, billboards? Yeah, well, it's about just sort of for us seeing the opportunities as they as they come mm. about. Um, you know, a, a few years ago we had we had um, clients started coming to us saying, "Hey, can you can you do us a mural?" And and so we'd, we'd find a location and and organise an artist and do that, and that sort of um, turned into a big growth area of the business where we, we were doing a lot of a lot of hand painted um, advertising. Um, but yeah, and then with the other other parts of it sort of it's been kind of 
led by um, lead by our clients in the industry, um, asking for for a better quality product. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you know we we um, you know the old way of doing posters was you'd you'd find a wall and you'd slap up as many posters as you could on that wall, um, whereas um, we sort of individually frame every poster now so everything everything has its own frame every poster goes through its own special treatment process so it, so it's weatherproof um you know every every frame is booked every week by by different advertisers every every frame has a has sort of um attribution indexes on it so we know what kind of audience um sees the poster um at, at what point of the day so yeah there's there's whole lot of different um, data points that, that, that add value for the customer. Yeah, how do you compete, I suppose, against some of the big wigs in the industry, you know, the big sort of billboards and those sort of companies? Yeah, well, I guess it's um, interesting and I, um, I guess I'd say that, that um, as the industry is digitised, um, we've, um, we've become more competitive in that market because... Um, historically, um, large format out of home has been has been sold in, in month long blocks, whereas um, uh, we were always sold week by week. Um, and as as the industry is digitised, um, um, they've sold week by week as well. So so what we've found is that the industry has has realised that we're we're you know as as well, the industry has changed to our way of selling. Um, which has made it easier for us, but we're sort of, you know, we're operating in a in a in a static, um, largely static um, advertising space. Uh, but we're managing to grow our share in that in that in that space. And how did COVID impact the business? Uh, hugely. Um, it was, uh, you know, and you know, in March or February 2020, um, you know, 60% of our clients were events, and and you know. By April, we had no clients, so um, definitely went through some real challenging times. But um, the events scenes rebuilt itself. Um, you know, the the advertising agency market's kind of um, you know fighting through some 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 tough tough times, and we're we're seeing real renewed um, interest from our from our um, direct customers as well. Mm-hmm. And what's the secret to a forty-year-old business? Ah, sticking at it. <laughs> um, um, you know, there's, you know, I'd be lying if I said to you that that you know, as a forty-year-old business, that every every year was great and and it was always it was always plain sailing. It's, you know, it has its ups and downs, but if if you just Keep sticking at it and and keep to your keep to your core principles of you know which for us is about adding value. Mm-hmm. And as the man in charge, sort of how do you plan to evolve the business further? Where do you see it in sort of five years' time? Um, we are what what we're told by by you know people around the world is that we are the best in the world at at doing posters. So so you know the the idea is to kind of you know leverage that a bit. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. With us is KPMG's Richard Threlfall. Uh, Richard, you're in New Zealand at the moment to talk about congestion charging and transport. What's your focus here? Uh, thanks, John. It's really good to be on the uh, on the programme this morning. Um, 
Sure. So it's about congestion charging. It's about actually the future of mobility. It's even broader than that. All over the world, governments are struggling with how do they afford to buy the future that their citizens want? Um, and this is being driven by greater longevity, rising expectations of populations, but also, of course, the existential challenge that we face from climate change, the need to protect our assets from sharp climate change and the need to decarbonise. These are the areas that I'm really interested in. And what examples are you bringing to New Zealand? So if we take the broader picture, we've seen, obviously, with um, the European Union has been uh, moving really quickly in terms of a whole raft of regulations in order to decarbonise industries, most recently introducing the carbon border adjustment mechanism uh, in order effectively to put a levy on goods from outside the EU that don't reach the same standards. Um, if you look at the US, uh, obviously the Biden administration has introduced the, the IRA, uh, which is uh, incentivizing investments in the US economy, particularly in areas of decarbonisation. Um, so the, the big economic blocks of the world are moving really quickly to invest heavily, effectively to protect the future for their populations. And I guess this is the conversation that we're bringing into New Zealand today. Mm. If we look at the New Zealand context, there's currently a bit of a tussle between central and local government of how to fund these roads, especially in Auckland, uh, with the axing of the regional fuel tax recently. Uh, what are you witnessing there and, and how can this conversation be had? I mean, so my experience is that if you're trying to do anything in terms of infrastructure, you need a constructive relationship between what central government is trying to do and what you're trying to achieve at a local level. That's not just true for transport, that's true for education, that's true for healthcare, that's, that's true for everything. Um, and and you need an understanding around effectively where is the, where's the cost being borne um, and where is the, the, the fiscal ability to fund that coming from. Um, and it's got to be brought into balance. Um, if we look at what the UK has been doing over the last... 10 years or more with their city deals, effectively those have been correcting for the fact that so much of the tax revenue of the country goes to central government that there hasn't been the buying power at a local government level in order to invest in some of the critical infrastructure, including the transport infrastructure that they need. And then you end up with a handshake between central and local government in order to be able to make progress. So again, this feels to me like the, the sort of point in the conversation that New Zealand is now at. Mm. Who should fund it and what's the best way? So, I mean, this is, a, this is an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, any infrastructure development, so you know, let's focus on, on transport improvements for the moment, um, can only be funded either by taxpayers in general or they can be funded by those who use the asset. And, and, you know, this is this has been a political debate all over the world for, for a very long time. Um, and it moves through generations. I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the first roads that were built in the world were turnpike roads, and it was the users that paid for it. And then we went into a period where we thought central government should pay for everything. And generally across the world, we've moved back to a model where there's more expectation that the user needs to pay. Um, and, and it's not just about um, a sort of equity question about who's paying. It's also an incentivization question um, because I've put this already in the context of 
the critical need to decarbonize um, uh, critical need to free up our cities so that the transport runs more efficiently um, and so uh, if you don't have some sort of charging mechanism or other incentive for individuals to where they can leave their cars at home or travel at a different time of day, then you just exacerbate those problems. What about public-private partnerships? So um, it, it, it's always intrigued me that there's been this uh, sort of often political football debate over uh, whether public-private partnerships are a, a good thing in principle or not. Um, to me, I take it back to some fundamentals. The whether we're talking specifically here in New Zealand or, or at the macro level of the world as a whole, the simple fact is that public money cannot afford the infrastructure that the citizens of the world are demanding. And I guess we can see that particularly acutely in the conversation that's happening here in, in New Zealand. Um, and therefore, it feels to me that there is an inevitability that we bring private investment um, into the development of a of a country's infrastructure, um, I, I, and I don't I don't see why we should feel at all uncomfortable about that because at the end of that uh, of the day, that private money is our money. <laughs> a lot of that money is coming from pension funds, for example, um, and surely we would prefer that that money was invested in our country's future asset foundation, you know, rather than you know invested in somebody else's assets or um. Uh, or, 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 or just you know, just put into the stock market. Um, so I think there's a very, very strong, if not overwhelming, case for finding ways to bring private money um, into the development and indeed, in some cases, the maintenance of a of a country's assets. The only question is how to do that in a in a way um, that is a fair deal um, for the public sector and the taxpayer, as well as attractive for those that are trying to invest. Do you find that politics does get in the way of actually getting the roads built, the job done? Um, so this this is this is also a really interesting question, and it, it came up in conversations that I was um, having yesterday in in Wellington. Um, in a lot of countries of the world now, uh, the main political parties, even if they can't agree on anything else have managed to agree on the essential need to invest at much more pace in their country's infrastructure. Um, you can see this in the UK, uh, for example, where, um, you know, not, not, notwithstanding the impending uh, election and many differences of views between Labour and Conservative, um, they absolutely agree um, on the importance of the long-term strategic planning that has been set out by the National Infrastructure Commission. And there's pretty broad agreement on, on the areas of investment that are needed in the country and the fact that that can't all be paid for by the public sector and by the taxpayer. Um, and I, I think it would be really helpful uh, if uh, it was possible in New Zealand to, to get to that level of consensus, not least because of your short uh, election cycles. Everything in infrastructure um, uh, is, is a long-term play. The infrastructure itself is being built to last for 30, 40, 50 years. Often the creation of that infrastructure is going to take five or 10 years. It's super unhelpful if politics means that you have a stop-start approach to what you're trying to do.
And what have you observed while you've been in New Zealand? Um, so I was I was actually um, in New Zealand last year for the infrastructure conference down in down in Christchurch, and um, and that that really I mean I'd been in New Zealand before uh, pre COVID, but it was it was last uh, last May at that conference that I I guess I really became conscious of the um, depth of the challenge that the country is facing in terms of finding the affordability for the investments that it that it needs to make. Um, and I've always been conscious of the fact that um, one of the challenges also that New Zealand faces is that uh, uh, you have uh, obviously a relatively constrained domestic construction industry in order to support a lot of these these these, these things. Um, but on the other hand, um, I don't think you should uh, underappreciate some of the advantages that New Zealand has. Um, historically, quite an innovative uh, economy uh, in terms of, uh, for example, you know, one of the first countries in the world to to embrace pricing of uh, vehicles on roads, um, uh, the, the strength of rule of law, the strength of administration and so on. These are things that are really attractive, for example, for international investors. Um, so I think if the prioritisation is put in place and the clarity comes from government, uh, for what you're trying to do, then I think it would actually be relatively straightforward to start to turn things around. Richard Threlfall, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. MB has just released its briefing to Brooke Van Velden, the Minister for Workplace Relations and Safety, outlining what it views as the government's priorities. Some of these have already been whipped into law, repealing fair pay agreements and expanding 90-day trials, for example. But there's likely more to come. DLA Piper partner Carl Blake joins me now. Carl, thank you for coming in. Um, now, first of all, you quite like the fact that we have this summary Yes, indeed. So we've had the 100-day plan, as you've mentioned, that's been actioned um, on time. And a lot of employers and employment lawyers are out there saying, well, we, what next? Um, what does the next 12 months look like? And we've got a summary from MB, at least in its perspective, as to what it believes the government's priorities should be and effectively what order. And um, it, it is a good insight into what we're likely to see happening next. A side issue, but does MB decide that or does the government decide what the priorities are? Well, that's a great question. It's as, it's as if MB's gone and reminded the government what it thinks, at least, its interpretation of the government's priorities. It certainly has left a lot on the table from the change of government and there were many things lying in limbo. There were things that had been introduced in, in bill form. There had been um, bills that had been proposed but not drafted yet. Yeah. So it's a matter of, well, where are they at? And it's effectively MB saying, well, here's your, here's your to-do list. What are we doing with this and where is it going? Right. So I see under their commitments there is a reform of health and safety law and regulations. What, what making them looser, I presume, is the... Well, actually, it's more about, I think, in combination with one of their mandates to have chief executives of public sector organisations tighten the belt and try and reduce costs, there is, I understand, going to be a, um, a look at uh, WorkSafe's function in the sense of where it should be devoting its resources and I think the intention would be to reduce those resources in some areas, maybe bolster them in others, but um, there would be some downsizing potentially, we understand, in that area. 
not so much about loosening the laws as I'm aware, it's more about the, the way that those are enforced and where the energy should be spent in prosecutions. Right, okay. Um, the personal grievance changes we have covered and the moderate increases to minimum wage, yes, we know this. Um, what has this national interest test undertaken before New Zealand accepts any agreements from the UN? Yeah, so that's, we've, we've always had a, from the, the human rights perspective, there has been, not a tension, but there has been certain um, global um, mandates that we've signed into or not. And this appears to be adding maybe a little bit of an extra layer of, um, of review and debate about whether we adopt something from offshore in the sense of a, of a um, human rights. But it's very quiet. This is the first I've seen. I'm, I, to be honest, I couldn't tell you much more about what that will mean in practice. Mm. But it does feel as though it's going to be an extra layer of, well, how will this work here? Do we really need it? Yeah. And you're getting that, that interest test as well. Is it something that we really need to apply in New Zealand? And that sounds like, you know, yeah. it jives with what New Zealand First has been saying Correct. in its election mm. manifesto. Um, paid parental leave, this is an interesting one because it was actually a bill introduced by National. Yeah, so the, the flexibility um, in relation to how parents or caregivers share parental leave was introduced, as you say, it was under the Labour government, but it was introduced by the then Deputy National Leader uh, in the sense of trying to create a more flexible environment where both parents or caregivers could take time off at the same time effectively because currently you can share parental leave between caregivers, primary caregiver or for instance the, the, the male partner typically would maybe take some time off but it wouldn't be at the same time as the mother and the bill would look to make that simpler have people right. be able to combine their leave but not so it extends beyond the current length but it's a matter of having flexibility as to when you take it, maybe take some go back to work and take some more again, that sort of thing mm. The fact that it was introduced um, by National would signal that there could be some traction going forward. Obviously, that would now be a coalition issue, but you would expect where it came from to um, help inform where it might land in the sense that I think that might go ahead. Right. Yeah, because it is a commitment, as you say. The Holidays Act. Now, we have covered the sort of the bones of this, but where is that at? Yeah, so the, the interestingly, I mean, if, uh, employment lawyers have just been discussing the, the changes of the Holidays Act for five plus years now. Yeah, it seems like. Um, <laughs> the fact that MB has said that the drafting of a bill is underway is the first, at least I've seen, an actual reference to the fact there is actually legislation. We all knew this, that it was, mm. you know, behind the scenes there were things being done to create a new law. But MB saying, look, there's still work to be done, but the adoptions, the, the recommendations of the task force that we've all heard about over the years seem to be heading in the same direction very slowly, but we're not seeing a deviation from what was recommended. So if you go back, if you just Google that task force report, that is still, I think, where we're going to head. Right. But there yeah. are some areas yeah. that do look more up in the air. Mm. Um, ESG is a, is a big one. Now, we know there is a sort of a pushback against some aspects of ESG. In particular here it seems like modern slavery, which previously had sort of widespread support across Parliament, um, some of that legislation may be up in the air. Yeah, exactly. That's a perfect way to describe it, up in the air. It doesn't, I'm not seeing anything that says it's, it's being turned mm -hmm. around. I think the quotes um, from the Minister were that it's reviewing Labour's plans, that they are yet to make decisions on them. Um, look, I think this is a coalition issue again. I, I agree with you that I understood that there was broad support for this 
in some form being introduced. I know there was some debate amongst employers as to what this should cover, for instance, worker exploitation and modern slavery, distinct concepts. There was some concern that worker exploitation might extend to um, underpayments that weren't so serious as to warrant being, you know, um, falling foul of this legislation, mm. but nothing to suggest that this was being turned around or stopped. And you only have to look off overseas. We all know where the world's heading in this regard. And I think, if anything, this will maybe slow our progress, but it won't stop it. Mm. Gender pay gap, though, is one where they have actually said they're not, or, or one of the yeah. members of the ACT Party, Correct. do yes. not like it. Exactly right. So this is a bit more overt. We've got National Broadly supporting, as I understand it, ACT has come out to say it would be red tape and it doesn't want that extra burden on employers to report. Um, from memory, National actually introduced uh, reporting in the public sector and um, I understand that there's actually historical low gaps in the public mm. sector as a result of that. So yes. there you go. We've got a bit of a, a debate amongst the coalition there. Absolutely. There are also some members' bills that were introduced by the prior government. Mm. Will they progress? We don't know. Um, restraint of trade is a big one. Yeah, look, I think um, I think when I, we, you and I have spoken about this before yeah. and we said, well, what would happen if there was a new government? I think my words then were that it won't go anywhere if we have a national-led government because of the the, the impact on, on corporates. They, they don't like this. I think the restraints, restraints of trade should be used properly and if they're done properly and fairly, they should be enforced. Now, that's not a widely held view across all spectras of government, but yeah. I think the right restraint wording in the right circumstances should prevail. And the bill as drafted would stop genuine restraints where they need to be res- uh, enforced in some areas, and that's just not commercial. Interesting. Um, crimes, theft by employer. I mean, for goodness sakes, how could you ever have an objection to this one? Yeah. And this is one, to be fair, that I haven't heard a peep on really. Um, it's, just to recap, it's intended to um, clamp down on intentional withholding of, of wages. I mean, mm-hmm. we're looking at the worst employers, the lowest common denominator here. There are already paths that employees can take yes. to recover these underpayments, but they are difficult, costly, sometimes employees just have no access to these to, to access to justice. This would make it easier to raise a claim and also criminalise it, therefore being more punitive. I would suggest that drafted properly, this should not meet great opposition. It, it makes sense. It's following Australia. Victoria, Queensland have similar um, laws in place with far higher penalties than New Zealand's proposing and they seem to be working. And it mm. kind of overlaps a little bit with migrant exploitation, doesn't it? Ag- agreed. Which yes. they are committed to. Yeah, exactly right. And this is this is the thing. It's the it's the, the lowest common denominator. It's the, the those employers, so very few of them, that are actually intentionally flouting the law that this would scoop up. Um, and yes, that would coincidentally and maybe not um, coincidentally, but also cover the, the most vulnerable and impacted employees being migrant workers. Right. And just finally, employment relations protection for KiwiSaver members. Now, where's that at? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, total remuneration approach has been a, a, a seesaw when, ever since the KiwiSaver Act came into force. The ability for employers to adopt a, a global approach, a total remuneration approach, where say someone earns $100,000 a year, if they elect to join KiwiSaver, then effectively their base salary drops to 97 and they self-fund the three. And 
there are two ways to look at that. One, that sounds very unfair because the employee is effectively paying their own contributions and the employers. Employers might look at it on a total cost basis to say, well, we want two employees who earn that $100,000 to earn the same. If one's a KiwiSaver member and one's not, they should be treated the same, so they should have the same package. So that's the the concept. We've got Labor... um, uh, disallowed that approach. National allowed it. This is back in you know 10, 10 years or so ago. So that gives us some signal as to what might happen here, where we have uh, the consumer New Zealand feeling it's unfair because of the impact on employees. We now have a, a national well, coalition government who has previously certainly um, favoured a total remuneration approach. So uh, surely statistically the money would have to be on um, that being allowed in the sense that the status quo, which allows total remuneration approaches, staying the same. Therefore, that bill might not go anywhere. Very interesting. We'll have to wait and see. Thank you very much, Carl. Thank you. After being forced to sell half of the company during the COVID lockdown, Juicy co-founder Tim Alp is now focusing his efforts on Lilo, a budget-friendly hotel chain with a flagship property in Auckland. Under the ownership of the EVT Group and Iron Expansion in Australia, Tim joins us to discuss what we can expect from Lilo. Kia ora, Tim. Thanks Hi. for coming in today. Really appreciate your time. I'm just wondering, could you share a little bit about the inspiration behind Lilo, first of all, and how it differentiates from traditional budget accommodation? Yeah, sure. So this sort of dates back to when, with, with the Juicy Camper Van business, it obviously it came from there, and, and we had a lot of people who were hiring vehicles with us, cars and camper vans, and they were saying, look, we we love the innovation in that product, but we get out there and want to stay in accommodation, you know, really good affordable accommodation, and there's just not a lot of good stuff out there. And it kind of gave us the idea to go, actually, is there a way in which we could rethink the sort of budget lifestyle accommodation? And that's how the idea for Lilo sort of came about. Uh, we looked at um, traditional, I suppose, hostel or backpacker accommodation, and we thought, you know, how do we, how much better could it be if we just brought some innovation in? So we designed our unique pods that we offer, our unique accommodation. And we also really tried to create a product which was very much around community travel, community living, so you're really, really cool communal bathrooms, communal kitchens, communal areas. Um, so yeah, just totally tried to reinvent what was out in the marketplace and it's been great. So you've just recently opened in Auckland, now you're eyeing up expansion in Brisbane. Can you talk a little bit about firstly the expansion strategy and then also how you select new locations for Lilo properties? Yeah, sure. So I mean, it was always one of those things when we we built our first. Uh, obviously, we had one in Auckland before, and then Christchurch and Queenstown, uh, and then we were building a flagship property in Auckland, which we actually kicked off pre-COVID, uh, and then it sort of took four years to get completed with stops and starts with in terms of the tourism industry and COVID, etc. So we always wanted to build this flagship property uh, up here in Cook Street in Auckland. Uh, we opened that in December of twenty two. Uh, so it's about sort of 14 months ago uh, and it's it's just been incredible it's gone really really well um, it's the biggest property of its type in the country it's sort of never been done before across New Zealand or Australia this sort of pro- type of offering and it's been really really well received by both traditional I suppose hostel customers but also by a whole range of different people who would never stay at hostel accommodation before and so it's um it sort of gave us the confidence to go okay that's gone really really well 
um, now where, where can we take this product? And, and we're really fortunate with EVT, uh, the parent company. Uh, they've obviously got a huge experience in, in hotel expansion. Uh, they have the, the, the Ridges, the QT, the Atura Hotel brand. So they, they know how it is to roll out a, a concept. And so, you know, they were very, Jane Hastings, the CEO, was very adamant to me that, you know, she really saw this opportunity and wanted to replicate it across New Zealand and Australia. So the opportunity was for us to take that. So, and Australia is a big market. And again, similar to New Zealand, over COVID, it was decimated. I think we lost about 70% of beds in New Zealand. They lost about 50%. So the opportunity is now to actually go and replicate what we've done in Auckland, Christchurch and Queenstown and take that across the ditch. So for us, it's really looking at the key markets uh, and the key gateways are probably what we're focusing on first and foremost. And Brisbane being one of those, obviously Sydney, Melbourne, Cairns, um, Perth, all the major gateways in Australia and also a few more in New Zealand as well. Who is the typical Lilo guest and how have you tailored your experience for them? And have you noticed any changing trends and customer expectations since Lilo's inception? Yeah, it's it's, re- it's a really good question. We initially, obviously, would target the sort of 18 to 35-year-old um, backpacker market, and that was sort of what traditionally stayed at this sort of accommodation. That's really changed post-COVID. Um, so we've actually seen a real increase of a lot more solo travellers, a lot more people in their you know, 50s and 60s, 70s who would never have stayed in a hostel will stay with this type of offering. And we've been able to do that because we've created a product like our pods, for example, are totally unique. You have your own private pod, your own privacy shield that comes across. So it's very much like communal travel, but having the security and safety that comes along with the offering that we offer. So we've designed products which cater for people who would never have thought about this type of accommodation. We've got ensuite rooms, we've got shared rooms. So, And it's, it's really, I suppose, really targeting people who again would never have stayed we've got families who will come and take a whole pod room out because it's more affordable than taking two hotel rooms so and that sort of stuff that's come out of COVID whilst COVID was decimated our industry um, it taught us a lot and enabled us to actually think outside the square which has been really really exciting and I think that's what we've seen is really great so we're not, not just reliant on one type of clientele we get a whole bunch of difference we're seeing people who will come and stay for a month with us and they'll work from from Lilo so with Lilo you can work eat play anywhere in the building um, how is business going can you sh- share any key figures and numbers you know revenue profit and what's the financial trajectory looking like for Lilo yeah I mean we've always said and I've always said this to Jane and the EVT guys is we need to earn the right to grow so it's really important that as a business we perform and we deliver uh, and and we're, we're doing that you know we've had a had a, had a great year um, the first year of Auckland you know you always get a bit nervous when you open a new product new property with sort of 300 beds but it's gone exceptionally well you know we've um we've had occupancy well in excess of 80 percent across the year that's gone really well um the demand for the product has been great with and that's they're giving us the confidence to then go okay where else can we take this product so that's been good um our queenstown property that we're right in the heart of queenstown down there and queenstown's bounced back and that's been really great to see so that's that's going really well and christchurch which was a little bit slower to to kick back off in i think um you know we, we always knew it was going to be a little bit slow we were basically the airport there but now the flights have all started to return to the South Island which is great uh, and, and we're starting to see really really good demand for that Awesome, really exciting stuff Obviously EVT is um, playing quite a pivotal role in all of this For those who are unfamiliar with the background between Juicy, Lilo and how EVT has come to be a part of this, can you just explain the nature of that relationship and also I guess the influence that they have on the strategy and vision for Lilo? Yeah sure, so it's um, so before COVID, 
not not actually long before COVID hit, we locked down. Uh, we sold half of our accommodation business, Juicy Snooze, to EVT. Uh, obviously, EVT is a very strong player in the hospitality hotel market uh, across New Zealand and Australia. Uh, but this sector of the market, they did they didn't have a presence in, so they really liked what we were doing with uh, Juicy Snooze, and we wanted to take it from a innovation and development perspective and growth so they took they bought 50 percent of it during but uh, just before covid and obviously when the borders closed and 90 percent of our businesses stopped overnight across the juicy portfolio and we had to diversify and we sold the other half they bought the other half of juicy snooze during covid um, and um, and asked me to come along and help them roll out the concept and complete Auckland and roll out this concept across New Zealand Australia and beyond so um, it's been yeah it's been fantastic I mean they're very passionate about the Sector. Um, they've seen what what can be done in the space. I think they, they've been a really pivotal part in our ability to think a lot bigger than just you know um, just being restrained, I suppose, by certain areas. That their you know their mandate is how do, how do we you know how do we really grow this? How do we become the dominant player in this market? How do we continue to innovate? They're really respectful of that, and I and I take my hat off to them. They you know they're very respectful of the fact that actually we are different. Um, and we need to move quickly, and let's not stifle that, but let's give all the support around it to grow. So it's been, yeah, so far, so good. I'm just wondering what sort of challenges you've had to overcome. You know, you mentioned COVID, and obviously that made you have to um, force you to pivot a little bit. Over the last sort of 12 months, what challenges have you faced and how have you overcome these? Yeah, I think I think the thing for us in terms of, you know, you've always got challenges ahead of you. You know, we're, as I said to you before, we've got to earn the right to grow and I've been very adamant about that with our team. Um, some of the big challenges that I suppose we've faced is anything to do with construction and build has always been a challenge. You know, we've had lots of um, cost escalations and, you know, ch- stops and starts with COVID didn't make it easy when you're building stuff. I think just trying to, trying to find people was a big one for us. You know, we've... Um, when the borders closed, all the traditional people in our sector buggered off back home again. Uh, so to get good people within the business again was difficult. And and we're, we're a people business. Our people are everything. You can build the most beautiful looking property. You can have the best best beds, the best everything else. But unless you've got the right people who who represent the brand, who are passionate about the business, it, it all falls over. So for us to get those people has been a bit of a, a challenge and hold on to them. Um, that's Thankfully, that is changing with more people coming in with visas, working holiday visas being a lot more accessible, um, which has been great. Yeah, small challenges like Queenstown, for example, getting accommodation for our staff has been a real challenge and a real nightmare. And so, you know, we've had to be able to try to find ways in which we can accommodate and help them get accommodation just to get through. So there's no no end of challenges across the line, but I suppose what it does do is make you continuously think outside the square a little bit which has been really exciting looking ahead to the future where do you see lilo in five years do you have any specific goals in terms of um you know portfolio size your presence geographically or other service offerings that you might uh, have available yeah look we we're, we're very much on a growth aspiration you know we, we think this product we want to take more lilos to the market we think the market is desperate for them i think we've shown with our properties here in new zealand and especially in auckland and christchurch and queenstown that actually there's a huge demand for this type of product and offering and we're very fortunate to have the really good support of evt to go okay guys where can we go so i mean for us five years time looks like we want to be the dominant player in the space um not just across new zealand australia but i'd like to think that we're in other other geographic locations as well places what we do know is that because the majority of our customers um, are internationals, especially over summer, we know that Lilo has global appeal. So a Lilo in the UK, in London, a Lilo in Los Angeles, a Lilo uh, in Hong Kong is totally 
is, 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 a, is a total realistic opportunity and, and, and goal. So we're really keen to grow. We've got some great projects in the next 12 months. Obviously, we've got Brisbane coming up. Uh, which is really exciting. We opened that in April, uh, and then we're doing a project in the Gold Coast on the uh, on the back of the QT Hotel there, which will be a flagship property in Australia. It'll be incredible, and we're doing a property in Fremantle as well. So there's lots happening, which is really exciting. What's been a highlight for you over the last sort of twelve months in this journey with Lilo so far? I'm very thankful and grateful for the opportunity to relaunch and do something totally different but do it again and I think Lilo and Lilo the brand is only sort of 14 months old and what we've done in that space uh, already and the presence and the impact that we've had has been incredible so I'm I love the fact that we start we're a startup I love the fact that we've got the um, support behind us to grow really strong um, so that kind of gives me my mojo and uh, to be fair COVID you know that kicked our ass and um, and it, this has been quite cathartic for me and it's given me this sort of um, new lease on life, I suppose, and I'm very grateful for that. And I think we've learned so much and what we're doing now will be a so much better business going forward as a result. Um, and I'll be a better person as a result as well. So it's been awesome. So I'm yeah, really thankful and grateful for it. How have your visitor numbers compared to your projected sort of bounce back post-COVID? Yeah, I think we were always going to struggle a little bit. You know, we had a very, you know, for, for better or worse, we made a we, we took a really strong line on on um, on the border closures, and it was a long it took us a lot, lot longer to kickstart and reboot. Uh, it was also expensive to get here, and the flights weren't there wasn't as many flights, and then the visa process was also a bit antiquated and a bit difficult. So we had a few things against us, which really made it difficult for us to encourage a lot of people to come in uh, Australia. You know, no question they did a better job in terms of that opening it up quicker and they got the benefit from it. Um, Canada got the benefit from it. So I think we, we're there now, we're getting there now and it's and we're starting to see the real... I mean, we probably expected a few more international customers coming in. Um, didn't really impact on our business so, as much though. I think our clientele will, will come regardless. You know, they, they usually bounce back post 9-11 or GFC or SARS, that sector of the market, that free independent sort of sector, bounces back a little quicker. Tim, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers, buddy. Really enjoyed it. Thank Thank you. you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 